What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, welcome back, Nightmare Success listeners, in and out. We're here. It's Friday. I don't know when we're going to release this, but it's Friday right now. I um, I am so excited about the guests I have. We come and we listen to these stories because it's what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? Well, Sabrina Morgan, uh, I have been deep in reading her blogs. And and uh, if you want to read uh, sabrinamorgan.com, she wrote these blogs mostly from prison and it's just she's such a great writer and I just told her before we got on the greatest thing about her her writing is is that you really truly feel like you're right there with her you feel what she's saying you you um you can actually it's like you're walking beside her as she's writing and it's just it's fascinating she has an unbelievable story um you know it's it's kind of like she was a she was a kid you know, talks about, you know, we'll, we'll get into this, you know, that she had a, a great family growing up and she had a high school, you know, she ran cross country and volleyball and she got honors in academics. And then, um, you know, she, she got into her life uh, and things that had bothered her or had been a part of her. She started living a double life. She got addicted to drugs. She even got shot in the back of the head, which we're going to talk <laughs> about, which is just, she was a passenger in a car and shot by a police officer in the back of the head and survived. Um, she eventually got nine years of sentence and she just got out uh, a couple of years ago. And I just, there's so much that I want to talk to her about and I can't wait to unpack all this before we do that. I want to recognize our uh, sponsor of the show Autoplaz direct, you know, who likes spending a couple of weekends walking the lots looking for a car. Then you spend four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car. You know, it's kind of like a trip to the dentist. Well, there's a better way to take you away from all that pain and hassle getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. They also offer you warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Auto Plaza Direct. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Welcome, Sabrina Morgan. Thank you. How Thank are, you for having me. Well, I am so excited to have you. And by the way, I forgot to say, I, I, we were talking about all the other things that you've been doing. Uh, in a short amount of time, this crazy thing called TikTok, you have like <laughs> 40 some odd thousand followers and you are so good on it. Uh, you know, it, now that I'm following you, I, every time you pop up, I'm like, what's Sabrina got to say? What is she saying today? And it's always so good. Sabrina, you. you, and, and it, you, the funny, and you do funny things too. Like you were going to some fancy place and I can't remember what the uh, gala, you were going it to some gala, gala. <laughs> gala. <laughs> and you had an ankle monitor on and you were wearing a long skirt and you're like, I'm going, 
No big deal. This is a new fashion, new fashion piece here. Um, Sabrina, let's, let's, let's unpack all this because, um, you have lived and you say this in your, in your writing, it has been a roller coaster for you. And, and you say so many different things and I wrote some of them down, but they're like, you know, the, the fear and danger are not, you know, they're two separate things. And you just, you go into all these different things that, you know, how people get, cause this, this, you know, this show is about, you know, dealing with your worst fear, becoming your reality. How do you get unstuck? How do you step forward into the unknown? And a lot of people get, they get confused with the unknown being danger. And a lot of times it's just the fear of the unknown, whether it's good or bad, but right. going back into your world, um, growing up as a kid, there didn't seem like there was a lot of fear in your world. I mean, it sounded like it was, you know, your dad was an attorney and you had horses and let me know what, what all was going on with <laughs> little Sabrina back then. Little Sabrina. Oh man, she was something. Um, I did. I I didn't have any fear back then. Um, I didn't have any fear at all, and I I didn't see anything as dangerous. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was afraid of nothing. And um, you know, I I traveled and did all the horse shows and everything like that. But deep down, I had terrible body dysmorphia, and I was just convinced that I was so fat and. I wasn't at all. I had a six. I look back on pictures that I remember the day that I was like crying. Oh my gosh, I'm so fat. And I had abs. Yeah. It's I, a mental I would, thing. I would love, huh? It's a mental thing. It is absolutely mental. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I, I start, I got into the diet pills early and then I got into meth. Um, I was just self, you know, I'm so sorry. My dog is making weird noises. I don't um, hear your dog. <laughs> I've, I was just telling you, Wayne and Stanley, you know, they, they, the, Stanley actually makes funny noises and he's a black lab and he, he talks. I've never had a dog talk to me before, but the, it really freaks out our, our guests when they come over to our house. Yeah. Yeah. These dogs are something else. I, a massive and then a pit massive mix. So they're, they're both something else, but but yeah, you, but mean, before I, you got into the diet pills and that, you know, you, I mean, were you, did that happen to you when you were in high school? Yeah. So I, I was a fat child early, like second grade-ish. I was like, I got pretty heavy and then I got into the horses and when I got in, it, it wasn't for like a long period of time, but you know, you get picked on. And so I was, it was just heavy. Um, I was just scarred by it. Yeah. And so I got into the horses. Well, right before I got into the horses, I started, I lost a lot of weight that summer. And then, um, and then my dad got me my first horse. And the next thing I know, I go from just having a horse to going to horse shows. And when you start going to horse shows, then you need another horse for this and another horse for that. And so, I mean, I pretty much lived my life at the barn at my horse trainer's house and then going to shows and stuff. But, you know, I, I remember like we used to use this stuff for like stallions necks to like, it was this burning stuff that it was like, it was a, like a salve and you put it on there and then you put like a wrap on there and then you go work them mm -hmm. and they would lose all the cellulite and the fat. And I remember putting that on my stomach and wrapping myself up and going in a hundred degree horse trailer and thinking that was a great idea. So, you know, and I was young, yeah. that was like, 
I was really young when I was doing stuff like that. So I was, if I think back along those lines, I'm like, I was not right for a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, but I didn't have fear. I didn't have it. There was no part of me that was like, Oh, I'm afraid to try drugs. I'm like, cool. Let's, let's give this a shot. Let's see what this, what this does. And you, and you, you talk about that. It wasn't anywhere around as part of your family or anything like that. And that you, more or less, Sabrina, and you talk about living, you know, two lives. Like, what age were you when you were living two lives? You know, I, I've gone back and forth on this. I, at first, I was like, did I start when I was 12? I think it was closer to 13 or 14. Yeah. And uh, I had a boyfriend that had a car, and he would drive me out to get it. So... Um, and that's where it really started. He was the one that was like, Hey, you want to try this? And I'm like, sure, let's give it, let's, let's try it. Mm-hmm. So that's how that started. But and, I and did you feel like of- Sabrina, did you feel like that, that was some type of escape for you from these things that you had going on in your head that you were like demons that you were dealing with, but you didn't talk to anybody about? Is that what was going on? Yes, that, and you know, I have been ADHD, you know, back in my day, but when the the dinosaurs were still here, they didn't <laughs> diagnose for ADHD. Right, right. You're just hyper. And so, huh? You're hyper. And what did you say? Hyper. Like you, you weren't yeah. catching, um, uh, you, you were distracted. Yeah, I was distracted. And, and so when I did it, you know, uh, methamphetamine is just a molecule or so off from Adderall and all the ADHD meds. And so when I would do it, I could focus. And I, I mean, I did all my schoolwork. I lettered in academics. And then I would go run 10 miles and do a thousand sit-ups. Mm. And so it, it really seemed to work for me well for mm. a long time. And I could pull it off for a long period of time. Like it, at first, I had a great relationship with this drug. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as everything does, you know, it it takes its toll and then you want more and more and more and you find yourself in bad situations. I didn't go to parties and stuff like that. Like people didn't know that I was getting high. It wasn't a social situation for me. Did your parents know? No, absolutely not. They did not know. No, no. I remember, um, one of the, one of the guys that did know, he told his dad, and I remember one of my horses had colic and I'd been at the barn all morning walking this horse and walking this horse and walking this horse. And it looked like we were in the clear. If horses, this they can't, they can't throw up. So if they can't poop, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So this is the, this horse is the love of my life. I'm there walking this thing, walking him and walking him and walking him. The day goes on. And um, the vet was like, I think we're okay. You know, take a break for a little bit. And so my friend had called me and he's like, Hey, come over, you know, just stop by. And I was like, I'll stop by just for a little bit. So I stopped by and his whole, his family basically had like an intervention with me and they're like, we know what you're doing. And so, um, anyway, um, my dad called right after all this was going on and was like, Hey, you've got to, you got to meet me on front street because we've got to go to Columbia to get an emergency colic surgery on the course. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Okay. So my friend's dad, who was a cop, actually, he drove me to take me to my dad and he dropped me off. And when I got in the truck, he leaned in and he said, 
don't let her out of this truck until she tells you everything. And I was like, Oh, wow. (laughs) So, uh, we're cruising along. You know, my dad's super laid back. Like he's just like, he's like the perfect dad. He's just laid back and, you know, not a judgmental person. And so, you know, we're cruising along and he's like, okay, so like, what do you have to tell me? And I'm like, I do a lot of drugs. And I was like, I've basically done every drug, every way that you can do it. And I said, I prefer meth. And he's like, Oh, okay. How old old Sabrina do you think you were then? 2021 ish. Okay. Uh, It was, it was before I, I hit law school and I had made it into college, you know, I, I, I was successful with my grades, with, with all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but I was, I was losing it mentally. I was really starting to suffer mentally and and it was, it was showing, you Mm -hmm. know, you can't hide that forever. And so he was like, I just thought maybe you were crazy. (laughs) I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) And so (laughs) we drive to Columbia, which is about three hours from where we were horses in the trailer and you know when you go to a colleague surgery with a horse you you got one shot you can you you get them nice and feeling good and then you make that journey and if something happens on the road if they go down you're in trouble so you know it's a pretty intense it's always a a, an intense uh journey anyway so Mm -hmm. then this didn't help at all but he was like okay so what do you want to do i was like well i guess i'll go to rehab and he's like, okay, do you have one that you want to go to? And I was like, well, my friend Brian goes to this one, and he said their ice cream was really good. <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay, is that where you want to go? I was like, well, yeah, if they've got really good ice cream like that. You know, young and just dumb and just, you know, there's an emotional train wreck going on in your life. or like, whatever, sure. just getting some ice Just give me, take me where the ice cream's good. Take me where the ice cream's good, Yeah. <laughs> So um, we went, we got to Columbia and the horse, we went to the horse, the horse went through a surgery and we stayed until about, I don't know, I think it was five o'clock in the morning by the time they were done and so went and back up and we watched the whole thing. And then um, we left and we drove back to Kansas city. The horse had to stay there for a month. And so anyway, I, I want to say that was like a Thursday I don't know why I think it's a Thursday, but I think it was a Thursday because um, Friday we, so it was Friday when we're driving back. Mm -hmm. So we drive back and we get back to Kansas city and he's like, okay, we'll call, we'll start calling on Monday to get, you know, something going with rehab. And I'm like, okay. And so I didn't really think much of it. Um, I, I was like, you know, I'll be fine. I didn't even think about the withdrawal or the come down or anything like that. And so I want to say it was like probably Sunday night. Um, I was hallucinating so bad and I felt like a truck had hit me and I felt like all my bones were like, I, I had to go to the bathroom and to get out of my bed, I had to army crawl to the bathroom and I'm like, what is happening? Like, this is insane. And that same night, this friend of mine called and was like, I need to tell you something. And I'm like, okay, well, what else? <laughs> what else do you have to say? You know, 
randomly out of the blue and he was like, I just want you to know that this guy has been putting heroin in the mess that you've been doing. Oh man. And so it wasn't that I was, I wasn't really coming off this mess. I was coming off heroin too. And so I will never forget that feeling for as long as I live. Like that was unbelievable. So I think it was like Tuesday by the time we made it to get into the rehab. And, you know, I went, I went through the whole thing. I was real honest with them. I was kind of into it at this point. I was like, okay, you know what? I can do this. That's fine. I had become so good at hiding for so long that when I had that opportunity to like be honest about it, it did feel good. Mm -hmm. But um, I went and they were like, so you've detoxed. So I I explained everything to them. I, I told them that, you know, what I, what the withdrawals that I'd gone through, the hallucinations and all that stuff. And when I got done, they were like, you have managed to detox yourself for almost five days now. So I don't think you're a candidate for inpatient. You can do outpatient. And I'm like, okay, you know, and so what does that mean? No so ice I had cream. to go there. Huh? No ice cream. There was ice cream. I know, but you, were, had- you weren't going to get ice cream if you didn't stay. Well, I mean, during the day, they still had ice cream. Okay. All right. There was a whole freezer full of it. Okay, good. It was, I don't think it was special ice cream. I think it just tasted really good because of coming off all the drugs. I'm sure. And then you're like, fine. Yeah, you want sugar. Yeah. <laughs> so, which that leads me to, you know, I, I didn't, um, I, I didn't do well without, you know, cause I was gaining weight. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm not a fan of having sugar at, at rehabs, but that's not my that's not my circus or my monkeys, you know, whatever. But um, they actually put me into another group with eating disorder um, people. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to go between the two because, like, the eating disorder um, portion of it, you know, they don't have ice cream hanging from the ceilings and everything you talk about isn't, isn't your bad eating and stuff. You know, you, you try to work through, like, your body issues and stuff. And then you go to the the drug rehab portion of it, and all they want to talk about is drugs mm-hmm. the entire time. Like so, that portion of the day was just spent talking about drugs, talking about drugs, talking about drugs. I'm sorry, that was not helpful, and and it was not long until I was using again, mm. um, because you know everybody's telling their they they didn't have a really good facilitator. They didn't have people that were there to like kind of guide you through it. People were just basically in there telling war stories. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's not how it doesn't work. And so it wasn't long. I was back into doing drugs and, um, I, I did, I, I went to one year of law school and during that year I quit again. I quit everything. I was like, I'm done, done with it. But my idea back then of being sober, I was doing, still doing cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I was still doing cocaine at parties. I was still drinking heavily. Yeah. I wasn't sober. I wasn't clean. I was not, I was still in a terrible state of mind. And, and then I developed panic attacks. I found out what my first panic attack was. And I was like, this, this is not for me. You know, this, this, this is nothing. This is not going right. This is not how I, how I saw it. And, um, I had worked for, I clerked for a guy um, who was on what they called the death squad. And so he only represented capital murder cases. And so there was a little girl 
that, you know, going through some of these cases didn't bother me. You know, dudes killing dudes, who cares? I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I could look through pictures and eat a sandwich. It doesn't not bother me. But there was a little girl that I remember there was a manhunt. There was like the first real public manhunt that um, they, you know, it was all over the news. Little Pamela Butler um, was kidnapped and Keith Nelson was the guy that, you know, he, he, he kidnapped her and raped her and killed her. And so I went into work and there was, we're representing him. And I got into that and I remember sitting on the floor looking up at my boss and I was like, how do you represent this guy? Like, how do you do this? And he was like, everyone has a right to, a constitutional right to a fair trial which, you know, obviously going to the federal system later on, that, that statement kept ringing through my ears. Sure. And I'm like, are you sure about that? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I don't know. But uh, so I, I decided law school was not for me. And I decided I needed to get, you know, try to get some things figured out. And then I got into, I, I, I sold like ADT security door to door. And I did like reps jobs for like Winston and Marbles or for cigarettes mm -hmm. <laughs> going to bars once then sure and then um and then I got into real estate one day I remember I got up and I went upstairs and my mom was like what are you gonna do today honey and I was like I'm gonna go be a realtor and she's like you're gonna be the best realtor I ever. read that <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah you're big that's, cheerleader that's right that's the type of family. I, well, you're going to do the best. You're going to be the best yeah. one ever. And so I did. And I did pretty well with that. Um, and then I met my ex-husband. And in a, you know, a whiskey-filled uh, six months of my life, the next day I know I'm married. And bought a house, you know, did all that stuff. And then I, you know, year and a half into it, I was, completely sober like I was like okay this is my time like this is my opportunity I'm gonna change my life yeah this this will be because he didn't do any drugs he drank but he didn't do any drugs so I'm okay. like this is it like this is gonna be the thing and um and I did fine with that I, I did so, so have did he I, know Sabrina did he know about your past and that you were trying to get sober and all that kind of good stuff you know, I'm a weird creature and I don't necessarily tell anybody what's going on. I'm really bad about that. Mm -hmm. I'm terrible about being like, okay, this is what's going on with me right now. Like you'll hear about it later, but nobody around me like knows really what's going on. I, I can talk about nothing for hours and you can feel like we've had like deep conversations and I've said nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm bad about that. Like mm -hmm. it's one of my things that people are like, oh yeah, I know her really well. And they're like, what do you know about her? <laughs> nothing. She just talked to you she about nothing. She just talked. Yeah. Sit chatting. Yeah. And so um, I had been clean a year and a half. I had my daughter. Um, I adored her. I did not adore him. And that was, you know, starting to go downhill. And then when she was four, we got divorced. And it wasn't the divorce that bothered me. It was sharing custody to somebody that was never there to be a rounder, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's when I started, that was my slippery slope straight off the edge. And, um, I got, I actually went to the doctor, I got some Adderall, some Xanax, you know, they love to prescribe that. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're back off into it again on a much worse 
scale than I'd ever been on. You know what I mean? Like it was bad. So I had my daughter week, week on, week off. The weeks that I had her, nothing was going on. The minute she exchanged hands with my ex-husband, it was a wild, wild west around here. Wow. And, you know, and here I am, double life in it. Um, yeah. And it, you can't live that way. You can't survive that way. You're just surviving that way. You're not, you're never going to thrive that way. So, um, were you still selling real estate at that time? Yeah, yeah. I was. Yeah. And I was able to pull off for a while until I wasn't. Until, you know, I just started. Like, yeah, yeah, it was just too much. Gone over the edge. And I was just, I was losing it. Like mentally, I was so angry. I was just so angry. And angry is a funny thing for me because I. Well, you write about that. You, you, I do. Yeah, I mean, that's one of your points is to figure out what to do with anger because you can you can kind of change gears and put that anger like in a workout or whatever else that your passion is to find another obsession and get away from the anger. Yeah, I have to be so careful with angry. I have to be really careful with it because I'm really good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the one emotion I feel confident with. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I'm good with it. But it's dangerous for me. So you start sliding off this slippery slope and you know that you are. Um, Yeah. Where does it end up, Sabrina? So, so, you know, when you're involved with people and you are selling large quantities of drugs, you don't have, just being like, well, I think I'm going to stop now. That's a rough deal, especially a female. Mm -hmm. You know, people are like going to come over and try to, hey, you need to go get this. You know, that's, that's not, that's a hard one to get out of. And so, um, I, I was in a car with a guy that, um, was wanted and he was driving. We were about a mile from my house and it was late. He had done something. I can't remember. I think he worked on my, he came over, was working on my four wheel drive on my truck. Mm -hmm. And so we took it for a test drive and we were turning around. We were getting ready to come back. And, you know, I'm in, I'm a rural area, so there, there's not a lot of cops out here, but it was, a, it was late and I, it was after midnight and a cop rolled up and turned the lights on and he's like, I'm wanted and I'm running. And, I, and you know, honestly, I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't like, oh no, don't do that. I'm like, cool. Yeah. All right. I just put my seatbelt on, whatever. The no fear. You know, girl. I think back Huh? The no fear girl. What? The no fear girl. Yeah. That no fear girl. Yeah. Oh. So um, we went, uh, he, he takes off, but the cop didn't chase us. And we get up over the hill and there's another cop that puts, they throws out stop sticks that he was clearly not trained on because they didn't make it more than a foot past his foot. And so this guy just took a right turn and we're going. And I was like, you know, Nobody's really chasing us. Like, what's happening? Like, something's real weird. And so we took another turn, and I was like, I think this is a dead end. Like, I don't think you should have turned here. So he turned back around, and we we're coming up over the hill. And here's this cop that's pulled over. Quite, he's got his lights off. He's sitting in the ditch, and he's got a gun pulled out. And I can see this, and I'm like, oh. And he shot into the front of the vehicle. But then he, sh- and he had a flashlight that he shined into the car and saw where I was at. And as, as we went by, he shot five times at the back of my head in a very tight pattern. And so um, there was two in my headrest. There was one in my head. 
and there was two in the dash. Wow. And so, um, good Lord. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so when that happened, the guy driving said, Oh my God, they're shooting at us. And I said, yeah, I know. I just, I was like, I had put my hand up. I was like, yeah, I just got shot. And in those crazy situations, I'm the calmest. I'm like, yep, I just got shot. And he's like, what? I mean, that blood was just pouring everywhere. And I was like, he's like, I got to get to the hospital. I was like, you're not getting me anywhere. It's like, I'm hopping out the stop sign. So I jump out. Um, I just slam the door. And then, and I'm like, just go. And so anyway, I'm standing there and I'm like, what in the hell am I going to do? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm bleeding out. Like, this is not good. And I remember like looking, like all the cops like surrounded me. And I remember looking down, I could see the blood running into my boots. And I was like, oh, this, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good at all. And so anyway, I started testing them out. I'm like, what? I was like, is that your policy to shoot the passenger of the vehicle? Like, you didn't even try to stop the driver. Like, so you just shoot the passenger? We were unarmed. There was no drugs in the car. There was no nothing. There was no good reason for any of it. Wow. So, and I know. I know that this county was angry with me and they couldn't figure out what was going on. They pulled me over. They could never find anything. And so they, you know, I don't, I don't know. I I need to do the FOIA on that, that police report. But I, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm concerned about my anger. Um, But I know it's going to bring some things back and I'm going to be really pissed off about it. But. So did Sabrina, did they, I know they, they surrounded you, but did they immediately take you to the hospital? I mean, you actually got shot in the head and it was lodged well, was in a, your head. So I'm standing there and the one cop was like, can you just put your hands on the front of the car so that I can pat you down? I'm like, yeah, sure. So like I'm finger painting in my own blood on the top of this cop's car. And I'm like, and they, they just, they just kind of looked at me like I was a circus animal. I was like, I have a, I mean, it had to be like an adrenaline thing that you were on because I can't imagine that you were just acting normal after getting shot in the head. Oh, no. I, I mean, but I was this calm. Yeah. I mean, I was telling everybody about themselves, but I was this calm. And it was very strange. But, like, I remember um, the ambulance came. Well, there was one cop that kept trying to put, like, a maxi pad on my head. And I'm like, dude, just stop. Just mm-hmm. just, just go away. And no, And one cop pulled up, and I was like, He's just staring at me. I was like, because I mean, by this time, blood's everywhere. I was mm. like, I'm not a circus animal. You need to go. And he's like, okay. So I get in that ambulance. And um, I remember the ambulance driver was like, he, I, had, I have a lot of hair. And I had it up in like a bun. And he was like, did your hair stop it? Did your hair stop the bullet? And I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, it's not all the way through like it's in your head but it's not all the way through and I was like what that's a weird thing to say which I'll come back to that that's that's, it's an interesting thing but anyway so when I got to the hospital um the feds showed up and I knew what time it was Mm -hmm. because they were never they could never catch they never taught me anything and I was doing wrong Mm -hmm. and you know the feds don't need much of anything that it's just ghost dope, then that's all they need. But um, when they set up to the hospital, I was like, yeah, I'm hit. This is not going to be good. But the guy was still on the run, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And so they searched my house 
And when they searched my house, they didn't find any drugs. They didn't find any paraphernalia. But they did find my 12 gauge, which was, I mean, it was legal for me to have. I was not a felon. Right. They took, they took a picture of that gun and then they um, hit me with drug trafficking with the furtherance of a weapon. And that's, that's how I got that. Yeah. So did, how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital not very long. Um, they, oh, that was the other thing too. They kept trying to tell me it was just glass in my head. And I was like, I can smell my flesh and my hair burning from the bullet, which is smells like my body's on fire. Yeah. That is not glass. It's a bullet. So they, they ended up, it was, it had not, it had not gone, it, it pierced my skull, yeah. but it had not gone through. Yeah. You'd be dead. I'd be dead. And I don't know how, it's a God thing. I firmly believe it. Like I'm here for, I better do some things because I think I'm here for a reason. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I was, I, I remember, I remember all that because they kept trying, they kept giving me drugs and I was like, you can hit me with all that you've got in this hospital. I'm not going to sleep till you pull this thing out because I'm going to sue them. You know, yeah. I'm going on and on. Yeah. And, um, I never did do did that. But they but, didn't, but Sabrina, they didn't arrest you there, did they? No. So, so what, how, fact, how long did it, how long did it go that these feds show up then that they come and get you? They, the feds showed up that night, the night that I got shot, they were there that night. I remember talking to them with a bullet in my head. Okay. And, and they, uh, and some of this almost sounds like far fetched like what you're just sitting there yes i i mean like it was so weird and so surreal i've never heard anything like and it and i talked no no and it was adrenaline because when i after they took that bullet out all i remember from there on was flashes like i remember i i can see flashes of me in a shower with nurses ho trying to hold me up and i'm just like collapsing mm -hmm. and i i have flashes of me um, in a hospital bed with a pink handcuff on. Cause I remember talking shit yeah. and I was like, yeah, give me, bring me some pink handcuffs. Anyway, I remember a flash waking up and there was a pink handcuff and I'm just kind of looked over at the officer that was sitting there and that, and I don't remember what happened after that. And the next thing I know, my dad was getting me from the hospital and that's an interesting thing because you know your your family loves you and they want to support you, but at the same time, like, what do you do with this? Like, well, where yeah, do you I mean, go they had to have been scared to death. I mean, you were in a car, you got shot in the head, and your dad picks you up to right. take you home. I mean, I can't imagine. I'm, I mean, I'm a girl dad. I just I cannot imagine what your was dad that? was thinking and how scared he was. Uh, yeah. So you get home. What happens after that? I mean, what what? How does your world? Uh, your world has to be like in a a spin cycle you know you would think after all that that i wouldn't want to do drugs and they they sent me home with like 20 percocet and i was like this is it after they so i had just i had the bullet but then i had a bunch of glass in the back of my head so i had i had 19 staples total in your head and so huh in your head and you had 19 yeah, in staples in your head right yeah yeah and so they sent me home with like 20 Percocet and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too long after that, that, um, I, you know, somebody would bring me stuff over. I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't interested in stopping. How, how are you not interested in stopping after that? 
um, I don't know. You know, I don't know what part of my brain was, was like, oh, yeah, let's keep going. Why not? Why, why stop here? But um, it was, that was in February. And by, um, by June, the end of, no, I'm sorry, July is when I was indicted. Okay, so how how did that occur? Like, did they did they did they ever talk to you again, Sabrina, or did they just show up and and this many months later, um, you, there you what happened? Did you get did they break down your door? Did they tell you to come down and talk to them? Did they just serve you an indictment? Like, what happened? Oh yes, yes they 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 talked to me uh, multiple times. Um, they had me confused with another girl. Well, I want to talk about this because this is something that um, I think is very interesting about your case. I think it's a lot of what some people don't know because in prison, it's, it's a very common thing. The ghost dope is talked about a lot. When -hmm. you get out or you, you're around people that don't know anything, they don't have never really heard of it. Ghost dope. Can you walk us through how that happens in the federal system? Sure, I can. So ghost dope is it, it, it's, it's this simple. Um, say somebody gets pulled over in an area and the cop was like, hey, do you know such and such? And they're like, yeah, I know her. And um, they're like, okay, we'd like for you to come in and make a statement. And they're like, okay, cool. So they go in and they make their statement. You know, the, the bigger, the more weight they can give them, the better. The better it is for them. Weight because, of drugs, you know, they, right. The weight of drugs. And so ghost stuff is not actual drugs. It's actually just statements by people. It's, there's no physical, there's, there's no need for physical evidence. And so, you know, um, people were happy to tell on me. I, I didn't, I didn't you know, uh, deal with a lot of people, not very many people at all, which was interesting when I, you know, when I sat down and read my whole discovery, um, I was like, I, some people I knew exactly who they were. Some of it, you could tell it was just completely made up. And so that's just what goes up is it's statements by people that are generally trying to get out of trouble. Right. They're generally drug addicts to get and, a better deal. And, they're typically people that you would never give any credibility to, yet they will take their, their statement like it's a gospel. So if I said, hey, I saw Brett with um, a kilo of methamphetamine, they'd be like, okay, sounds good. Thank you. Did you see him do anything else? Did you see any guns with him? And they're like, oh, yeah, I saw, saw him with a 12-gauge. And they'd be like, great. Thank you. And that's that. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't fight a ghost because, you know, if, if I was to take that to trial, all of those same people would line up and be like, yep, that's what I said. Yeah, I just, yeah, I said that. And then, but there's no physical evidence to back it up. There's no credibility. Like they don't care who these people are. Right. And there was, um, there was some people that made statements that then, um, apparently they, they tried to black, blackmail my family and I guess had reached out to my attorney and was like, yeah, we'll recant our statement. We really don't know who she is, but they had put a lot of weight on me, and they were they were willing to um, to recant their statements. Well, it's too late. The feds don't care about that, right? And 
um, there was a girl that was living in a hotel that was close by that I literally had been to that place one time. That's it. And they were like, um, they believed that I was her. They're like, yeah, you've been living in that motel for all this time. I'm like, I, I live in a house. I live in a house in the country. Like, I don't go to hotels. I was like, wait a second. Can't you guys check the records? Like, it was an insurance situation. Like, check the records. You'll know who rented that room for a whole year. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really care to do that. They were more interested in just getting me, it seemed like. So, Which was a big shock to you because you thought with you looking through this uh, discovery they had on you and, and all these statements yeah. that you could just go back to them with your attorney and say, oh, by the way, that actually isn't me. The, that's somebody else. And here's the proof yeah. that it's it's not me. But what you found was is that's like – you know, an ant talking to an elephant. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's irrelevant at that point. I mean, like they got the people that were trying to extort money and stuff. They did end up taking that off. Like, if they, like it, and it didn't come down until sentencing where they were like, Hey, we did make some mistakes. Yeah. But all of that time. So yeah, like going through statements and going through all this stuff. And they were just convinced that I was this girl in this hotel. And I'm like, I've never been to that. hotel. Like I, I was at the hotel one night. For just five minutes, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then I left. I was like, "That is not me. This is this is simple. Like, all you have to do is check the records, check the cameras. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Just, There's just cameras look. everywhere anymore. I mean, right. With your dad being an attorney, uh, obviously he wasn't a criminal defense attorney. Was did that help? you being able to talk to him and, and work through different things with your attorney or was it, was, how did that whole thing work for you? And what was going on in your mind with all this? Like, what were you thinking? Well, so when I got arrested, um, I got arrested. I, um, I remember coming up over the hill and seeing my whole entire driveway full of very official vehicles. There was like Rangers out in my pasture and like, they swarmed me with like giant guns and I'm like, Whoa, I'm like, can I go pee before we do this? And they're like, no. And so, um, that was that they took me, uh, to Clay County first, just, just for a small amount of time. And then we went on to the federal courthouse. Um, and my dad, uh, let's see. It seems like I was able to make one phone call to my dad just very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Hey, they're, they're getting, they're picking me up right now. And so, um, they took me to, when I got to the federal courthouse, you know, you go into those little holding rooms right. and you're basically kept on ice, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they brought me out to the courtroom, which wasn't that something. I mean, what an intimidating moment yeah. to be handcuffed shackled you know never never I'd never been in prison or anything before so being handcuffed and shackled and coming in and sitting at that table and then having that plop down in front of me I was like oh you know United States versus Sabrina Morgan that's maybe the most intimidating thing you'll ever see in your life is the United States of America versus your name yeah absolutely um, I have a really, I have, I've had a, my attorney's great. He's actually one of my friends, one of, a good friend of mine now. And I really, um, you know, he fought really hard for me. You know, things are starting to change and people, it seems like, you know, people are getting less time and they're able to negotiate some more stuff just in the people that I've talked to. But, you know, 
when I went, when I was going through all this, there was not much room for negotiation. Yeah. There wasn't much room for, you could have the greatest attorney ever and you're not going to take it to trial. You'd be an idiot to take it to trial, especially something with ghost dope. Because like I said, you cannot fight a ghost. Right. You can't do it. Yeah. So... Yeah. So I when mean, you get when you get down to this, Sabrina, um, first of all, were you able to bond out, or did that was that it? Was that they kept you locked up from the time they got you uh, till the time that you ended up doing your plea bargain? So they, um, I stayed whatever when I got picked up. Um, I traveled to um, Osceola to like a little federal holding down there, and I was there. I think two nights. And then they let me out. They let me bond out. Um, okay. And my dad was to get me. Okay. Uh, I went back to court and they were, I was able to leave with my dad. And um, that was well, really I mean, something. One of, and my dad. One of the things that we talked about, I think it was last week when we were talking on the phone is, is that um, you had the same amount of time on pretrial that I did. It was the, that three years. And yes. that is a weird world to live in to be yeah. indicted and being on pretrial and having that amount of time to have these thoughts in your mind of all the things that go on from morning till night. Right. Oh no, it's crazy. I mean, uh, pretrial is more prison, more of a prison than prison Yeah. by far. Yeah. It was the hardest. It was by far the hardest of the whole, my whole journey was pretrial. How did you handle it? Um, what did you do during your three years of well, pre-trial? You know, it was a very interesting situation. I had a really great pre-trial officer who um, came out and saw me. He was, I don't know, is this, he, we clicked. Like I, I trusted him and he was a good guy. And he was like, listen, he's like, we, why don't we get you into rehab? You know, we'll pay for it. I would like to get you in this program. And I'm like, okay. You know, he went through the whole code of phone thing. You're going to be doing all these UAs, but he's like, I'd like to get you into the rehab program. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And so I had done rehab once before and I was like, okay, well, here we go. But this one was not like that one in that um, it wasn't, you weren't allowed to talk about your war stories and you weren't, you didn't just sit there and talk about drugs the whole time. Mm -hmm. It was different. And it was an outpatient rehab. And I actually went there for about nine months. Um, at first I was going every day and then I got, you know, went down to four days a week, then three days and then two. But, um, yeah, I was there for nine months and, um, I met a lot of great people. A couple of them I still talk to actually. But I mean, I got into it this time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it was because I felt like I was fighting for my life yeah. in so many ways, but I was fighting for my life. Like, this was it. This this had to be the end because, like, this life wasn't working anymore, obviously. And that whole thing, you know, I hate the embarrassment that I caused my family, but I needed all of that to happen so bad. You know what I mean? Like I needed that drama to pull me. It was the only thing that was going to bring me out of my life yeah. that I was in. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was the only thing that was ever going to get me out of that dark, the darkness that I was in. So, um, but yes, pretrial is absolutely the most horrendous thing. And they superseded my case 
uh, twice. Um, and that's what took so long to, to do it. But I, I remember, you know, you, you're out and people are like, oh, you're doing so good. You went to rehab. You know, there's no way they're going to give you prison time. Right. And I had one friend, one friend. He, he was my, he was my life coach, basically. He had been through the federal system and we worked out and stuff together. And he, he was like, I would come to him. Like, I, I think I started working out with him about midway through my pretrial. So I, I, you know, worked out with him for about a year and a half before I went in. And I was like, what do you think? Like, you know, these people are saying I won't get any time. And he's like, I want you to listen to me. You're going to get some time. Mm-hmm. You're going to get time. Yeah. You are going to prison. And I want you to wrap your head around that. You're going to prison. You're going to go away for a while. And then you're going to come back. And he's like, your parents are going to be older. Your daughter's going to be older. You're going to miss a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. But you're going to be fine. And you're going to get out. And you're going to go on with your life and you're still going to have plenty of life to live. And I was like, you don't think for a second he had to tell me that one time. He had to tell me that about 45 million times, mm-hmm. Almost, like every single day. Like, I mean, I would break down. I, I'm a fairly strong person. I broke down. I cried more on pre-trial than I've ever cried my entire life. Mm-hmm. It, the emotional and then looking at my daughter and knowing that I was going to be leaving her behind. I had to be, I just had to be like, and then what Sabrina, what were you thinking? Like, like how was she going to be taken care of? Was it going to be your parents? Was it the sharing of that with your ex-husband? Like what, what happened with your daughter? So my ex-husband, um, up until the time I was sentenced, Mm -hmm. he, you know, I, I still had my visit for my, my time with her. Mm -hmm. And then even when I was on, um, in federal holding, he, she was able to come see me once a week and we talked on the phone every day. And once I was sentenced, he took off to Florida with her and cut ties with my whole family, which she's very close to Mm -hmm. and, um, would let anybody talk to her. She would, had to be tough. It was horrible, Mm -hmm. but, she would hide when I was in prison, she would find a way to get a hold of my dad. And, you know, um, we got to do some video visits and stuff like that, but that was horrible. It was horrible. Well, let's talk about when you got sentenced too, because that, that you didn't get a a light sentence. I mean, were you thinking, you know, when you was getting down to sentencing your plea? Cause I know some of the things I read was, is that there was even a longer sentence than the nine years. Um, when you got that nine years, how did you swallow that? You know, I don't know. I, I, that day is just a bunch of flashes. You mm-hmm. know how you, you compartmentalize and you just kind of, yeah. I felt here in headlights. What I remember of that day, I remember walking in my the whole courtroom was full of my family, my friends, all my loved ones were there. I mean, it was packed. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had to read my statement and go through all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of stuff came out that there was mistakes made, some things happened um, because I was looking at a lot more time mm-hmm. and the judge took it easy on me. I mean, he could have very easily just given, you know, give me 15 years, but my PSI, you know, the original one read life mm-hmm. on, on the first go of it. And some of that stuff did get taken off. It was, it was just, it was crazy to me. Um, it, it was, it was such a hard time. Um, but 
Did they take you there that day, Sabrina, or did, did you get an opportunity to, to have those two or three months of more weird time before you went in? No. So um, I was, when I took my plea in Missouri, if you are, um, if you have a federal, you know, indictment, you, when you take your plea, that's when you turn yourself into the marshals. Mm -hmm. So I had been, so I was on pre-trial for three years. I took my plea. I turned, I turned myself into the marshals that day. And I was on, I was in federal holdings for one year before Mm. my sentencing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was, that sounds like a lot. Um, So we, tell me about that. Well, you know, federal holdings, um, you're in there with everybody. Every custody custody level, right. Every custody level. And everybody's treated like they're, you know, you're in max security. Mm -hmm. Um, I got really comfortable there. Really? You got Um, like in a good routine, you mean? I got a great routine. Um, I remember I was doing... I was doing something and the warden came through and I was like, Hey, um, we have a DVD player. Is there any way we can get some like workout videos? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'll bring some down. And I was like, that's the art of pacification. I'm like, you know, that's a lie. <laughs> no, we had insanity videos like two days later. So I was like, cool. So I had a good routine there. Um, I, I was very dark before prison. I got saved in federal holding. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, that was my first time with real incarceration, you know, I was, so I, um, I had a real, well, when I first got there, I, you're in intake for a couple of days. And, um, the only thing that we had to read was the Bible. And I was like, it was like an old King James. It was, you know, I was like, I'm sorry, I start reading from the beginning. And the, the lady that was in there with me, I was like, why do you read this? She's like, Oh, it brings me comfort. I'm like, this, this brings you comfort. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to read. I'm reading, I'm, <laughs> the King James version, yeah. 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 So anyway, I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. And so um, it was like before the last episode or the last season of Game of Thrones, and I was, I started reading, it and I was like, well, it kind of resembles the Game of Thrones. So you know, whatever, we'll just keep going. But um, I, I made friends with a girl. It was in there for like similar charges, and she was funny. Um, she would try to talk to me about different stuff and I just wasn't having it. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a Bible bedtime story. I'm like, okay, whatever. So she starts telling the story of like Esther, but she's doing it in a gangster version. And it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I laughed so hard. Like I couldn't even try to do it justice to do this. Yeah. So I don't, Yeah. I'll never forget. And I was like, okay, where's that at? And she's like, this is where you're going to read. So anyway, it went on like that. So I ended up getting saved and I, I became really close to the chaplain who was an amazing man. Like he was just very kind, um, very non-judgmental. And, you know, I was like, I got on through a lot of stuff and I, I really, I want to work through this. Like, I think this is where I, what I'm supposed to be doing. And so um, I worked through some books that, it was a lot. It was a lot, yeah. a lot, but um, it did change me quite a bit. It it did not the King James version, but it, it, it you know it having my faith. It did bring me a lot of peace. Yeah, and so that's what I I've held on to that, and and it 
it um prison was a blessing for me well, let's let's so talk about because i mean you spent a whole year in there and then you you get transferred yeah. to uh, pekin um in illinois yeah. for all those down in the cayman islands listing that's just not too far from kansas city and st <laughs> louis but um you you uh you went to peak in illinois how big a, how big a camp was that uh, it was less than 300 people. Okay. That's about what, where That's I was little. at. We had, we had 400 people. So what yeah. was after spending a, a year in, in this strange kind of detention lockup, did, did it feel different for you to get to a camp? Well, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was the most glorious thing ever, but I do have to back up just a second though, because I, I had to do two, two trips on Con Air too. Oh boy. So when I, when I left uh, federal holding, so I you, you ended up in to, Oklahoma. Left, Is that where you? I did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You did yeah, it all. And it was funny I I did the full tour. Yep. Um. So yeah, I. You know, you fly all day long because you go pick up people all over the place, and then you know you they they fly to the um to the ramp or whatever, and then you you know shuffle your way up to the these weird little steps that you have to stand on for them to unshackle you. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, after all that, that's when you find out where you're designated. Because up until that time, nobody's told you where you're designated. And um, I remember the guy was like, yeah, you're going to Pekin Satellite Camp. And I was like, I don't think you're right. Like, I don't think I'm going to. Because I guess in my head, I was such a criminal because of my points and because. But I had no criminal history. So it did make sense. But for some reason, I wrapped my brain. What do you mean? So I just kept messing with the officers and I'm like, Hey, can you look that up and make sure that's still there? And he's like, <laughs> the last guy was like, listen to me, you're going here. Like, what is wrong with you? I was like, I don't know, dude. I don't know. So, um, we did our, I was, I think I was in Oklahoma city for like five days. And then, um, we flew out of there and, um, ended up in Pekin and, um, the flight, so we landed in Rockford and Pekin's about three hours away. And mm-hmm. it's so weird that Con Air is something else. Cause you know, they circle the plane with all these giant guns. I mean, the, the airplane itself is a little spooky cause it's not that great of an airplane. Well, I'll tell you something funny, Sabrina is like, I mean, strange or odd funny. So I, I voluntarily <laughs> surrendered. And so that's kind of weird too, because you just stand at the gate. You know, you stand at this. You know, Leavenworth's eighteen seventy nine built. It's just, it looks like Shawshank Redemption. You just stand there. And it was like really cold day, but it was like nobody it was like nobody's there but me, and I'm just standing at this gate. So I'm in prison for a year and a half, and I have to go back to our civil trial. So that means I have to travel from Leavenworth to St. Louis. And the guys were like, oh, no, it'll be good. You know, the marshals are cool. And, you know, you'll you'll, you'll even Taco Bell or McDonald's on the way. So I was like, hmm, okay. Well, I go up and they call me. You know, they never tell you what's going to happen. It just happens. So, right. you know, they don't want you to know anything. So I get locked up in the, in the you know, the big place for about four or five hours. And I'm thinking, obviously, there's been some kind of mistake or something. What, what's going on? They finally come get me and they shackle me. And it's this Warren County sheriff with another sheriff, and we thrown into van. And it's the first time I've been handcuffed the whole time. I mean, I, I get shackled like you know I had just murdered somebody. 
But when I came back, remember, I voluntarily surrendered at this gate. You know, I said, hey, I'm here. And, you know, they open up the gate and take me in. When I come back in that van, I'm shackled. They pull out rifles. They surround the van with four rifles with guards to walk me back into the prison I voluntarily surrendered to. It was crazy. Crazy. And I walked past that place all the time to my job, you know, on the outside of the fence. And I come back to, you know, after, you know, four or five, six days, I've been up in this county jail. And it, you would have thought that I, you know, murdered a whole family. It was crazy. Right. So your, your county jail experience was probably similar to my federal holding. Yeah. It's horrible. The maximum but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. I was glad to be back at Leavenworth. And that's a really weird thing to say, but I was, well, I want to, I want to dive into, because I think where you're, you kind of found yourself in prison, which some people, you know, there's two ways to go in prison. One is you you kind of curl up in a fetal position for just totally give up. And then the other people are figuring it out. They adapt, they they find things. Sabrina, what happened to you like when you got there? Because I know you started writing, you started doing, you started, what happened to you? So I, you know, I've been, I've been working out like a psychopath in um, federal holding. And so as soon as I got there, you know, people would be like, are you a personal trainer? And I'm like, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be anything you want in prison. Yeah, you can. That's a funny (laughs) thing, too anything you want in prison and people, I mean, they're, I mean, I met the richest people. people the, the, I don't know how many people were, said they were pro athletes. And I mean, it was crazy what everybody oh, yeah. thought they could be in prison. Yeah. So oh, anyway, you, you, you didn't but, say that you were a, the trainer, but you could have been, I could have been. So <laughs> I, um, I started, I, they were like, Hey, can you teach a step aerobics class? And I'm like, I don't think you know me. I don't have any rhythm at all. Like, what are you talking about? And it was so funny because, like, because um, the, the step aerobic lady had left, and I had tried to do a couple classes. I mean, I couldn't hit the beat. I couldn't do anything. And I was like, and whatever. I never would have ever signed up for this if I was, if I was out in the real world. No right. way. Yeah. Uh-uh. But um, this girl and I, <laughs> I, 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 we got out these old DVDs, and there, I was like, okay, we're going to learn some moves. So we put, put this DVD in. And this lady's, like, going crazy all over the thing, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I was like rep step. Basically, I'm just like teaching aerobics class, jumping on this board and stuff. But it turned out pretty good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I taught a lot of I took, taught a lot of fitness classes. But I worked. Um, I was a food service warehouse um, inventory person. Me too. And so, uh, huh? I was too. I, that's that's where you that's were? that's where my job, my first job, was in the food warehouse. Yeah. I even got forklift yes. certified, which for the friends that have known me, me forever, find that fascinating. <laughs> I am forklift certified yeah. as well. Yeah, I did the whole thing. And I mean, it was interesting. Well, so our warehouse housed the the food for the camp and for the men's uh, next right. door, the prison next door. Yeah. And so it, it was a decent sized warehouse, but um, it was a good job. I, I originally, when I first got there, I started mowing. I was like, here, I'll drive, because I can drive a tractor. So mm-hmm. they're like, you can drive a big tractor? I'm like, yes, I can. 
So I'm driving the 6100 with a bat wing on it, cruising around the pastures. I was like, this is the best life ever. I can't, you know, this is wonderful. I don't care if it's 100 degrees. I don't care. This is perfect. I'm so happy. Yeah. And um, the warehouse boss, I kept being like, hey, I know you guys got food in there. I'm hungry. What's up? Anyway, so his uh, lead person was, was going to be getting out of prison. And so he sent for me and was like, what's up? Do you want to do the inventory? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So that's what I did the rest of my time. I, I did That was my job the entire time. And I really liked it. Um, I ate well. I mean, I got to eat like fresh stuff more yeah. than anything, you know. So that was good. Um, but the... I, I would work all day during that, um, during the day or during the week. And then I would, uh, work out in the gym at night. And there, there was, there was just such a different energy there. Like it's just raw. You know what I mean? Like everybody's wearing the same thing. Everybody's at ground zero. Yeah. Like nobody's better than anybody else. And yeah. that was incredibly comforting for some reason. Like you just didn't have to care. Like, you're not going to have, like, everybody's got the same clothes. Mm-hmm. You get the, you get different shoes, boy, I'll tell you what, they're going to be like, what are those? But, but there's, there's something so, there's something healing about it. At least there was for me. I read a lot of self-help books. Um, I read a lot of books on habits. Mm-hmm. And I kind of fell in love with that because I'm kind of an obsessive person. So you know, I'm reading these books about habits and I'm now I'm hyper focused on my habits. And so I'm like, okay, this is, this is my time. It's my time to train myself up for the rest of my life. I can create these habits right now. And, and you know, that's, that's what I can take out with me. Well, Sabrina, the and, big deal about that, cause I think you just dropped a big nugget of wisdom there is that <laughs> you can have motivation, but you, your motivation wears out. So you, you have to have discipline and habits that keep you going through that because that becomes what you do yeah. as a routine because you're, people think, well, I just need to get motivated. Well, that actually is not the case. You have to have the habits that keep the discipline, that keep you going into the yeah. steps you want to go to. That's a big, big yeah. deal. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was a big deal. It was, um, it was something that um, I just, you know, it, I'm an obsessive person. If I'm going to do something, I'm going all in, go big or go home. I mean, Lord help me. But yes, I, so I really started paying attention to like everything that I did. And, um, like from the morning when I start brushing my, I get up and brush my teeth and I would start setting my intentions for the day. And I was hyper-focused on like throughout the day, like, is what I'm about to do, like, is this going to help me with the trajectory of my life? Like, mm. Is this where I want to go? Because, like, people would be like, oh, no, don't worry about working out. Let's go watch this TV show. And I'm like, that's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, you weren't wanting you know? to waste your time. Yeah. I didn't want to waste a second of it because yeah. I was very You're- much into. You were preparing to better yourself to, get to whenever you got yeah. home. You talked about your brother and your brother really telling you to blog and you were like, what, what's a blog? And then you like started writing and you started writing from prison and these great blogs that went out into the world. Yeah. So he came to me and was like, you have a really interesting story and I think you should blog about it. And I was like, he, he'd come to visit me and he was like, I really think you need to do this. And I'm like, with a blog. And he was like, I'll send you some examples. 
well, so he sent me some examples. So what I would do is I would pick a topic and I would start writing about, I'd write about it all week long. Sometimes when I'm at work, sometimes like after my workouts, but I would always make sure to write like 250 words, minimum, minimum, just that's it. And you're a writer, so you know, like normally 250 words turns into like a page or two or three or four, you know, just depending on food, whatever you're doing. And so I would, I would write that all week long. And then Friday night when everybody else was watching the Friday night movies, I was landing my plane Mm -hmm. and I put my story together, putting my blog together and um, getting it ready to go. And so then Saturday morning I would get up and the computers would come on at 6 a.m. and I would start typing and I would type for 30 minutes. And then of course you're kicked off the computer for 30 minutes. And so I would do that throughout the day in between workouts and everything else. And so and we were uh, saying, Sabrina, that you've got to you've got to learn to type fast in prison because they charge you five cents a minute while you're typing. So you got to really get that down. You get really, really you become fast. the fast. <laughs> I mean, I I can whip stuff out so fast, boy. Yeah, I mean, it, so it, it is I, funny. The, but the other thing about that, though, Sabrina, it had to be for you going through all the stuff that you've gone through and a lot of the things you said you were living a double life. And so you were kind of keeping a lot of things in the things you write about now and in these blogs, you're letting it all out. That had to be a huge release from you, almost like a freeing of the mind to you're in prison, but you were freeing your mind out of your own prison of the mind. Yeah. About federal indictments, as you know, is like, you know, you can't hide that necessarily. I mean, I guess you really could if you really worked at it, but, I mean, for the most part, like, you know, my whole community knew about it sure. and, and there, there was no hiding. Like once I was indicted and once I was sentenced, there was no hiding that. Like, you know, all these articles and all these terrible things that were, you know, if you Google my name and it comes up and there it is, um, that's, that's all you can't hide from that. And I decided when I was in prison that I wasn't gonna hide from that anymore. Like that was, there was no more double lives. There was complete 100% transparency from now on. Like, that's how it's going to be. Like, yes, I did these things. And now I'm going to do better because of it. And I'm going to help other people because that's what you have to do. Like, that's not me anymore. And I truly believe, like, my transition through prison and out, like, I'm such a different person now than I was oh, gosh, yeah. before. I was, yeah. yeah, just night and day different. What, what did you but do, yeah, Sabrina, blog- with, like... Because you were in for, what, four years. Like, what did you do with hard days in prison? How did you get through hard days in prison? I did a whole bunch of burpees. <laughs> I, I did it. a lot of burpees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, you know, towards the end when I was in quarantine waiting to come out for the CARES Act, I was, you know, in this little room losing my mind. And I, I had a friend that would – so in quarantine for the COVID situation um, – they put you back in the swing and they have these like meat flap locker, uh, these plastic things that are like, you know, what you would see in a meat locker. Mm-hmm. And that was what kept you from the other portion of the prison. And so I would have a friend that would come to that portion of it and we would do burpee challenges through the plastic. And there was, there was many days that we did a thousand burpees. Let's talk about that whole thing with COVID. Cause that is something that. Yeah. You know, I was talking to some people that I'd, I'd been with at Leavenworth, and we were talking about how weird it had to have been to go be in prison during COVID because people got a little bit of taste of what it's like to lose your freedom 
on the outside because when COVID hit, you know, everybody, they, you know, had to stay in their house, you know, you content, you, all those things that happened during the COVID mandates, still nothing like prison, but a little taste of it. I can't imagine what it was like actually in prison because there's those little pieces of things. I'm going for a walk or I'm going to do this. And those feel like little freedoms to yourself. But if they take those away or your visits away from your family or whatever, how did you work through all that? Or how did it feel? Like what, what, how did the world change in there? It was insane. I, you know, and I'll never forget, um, I, when they made the announcement for everybody to go to their cube, um, I was on a video visit with my brother and his wife and it was like seven thirty, and I was sitting by a window and I kept looking out and I was like, I don't see a tornado or anything. Cause I was like, we'll just talk until they come. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't see any, like, I don't think we're having bad weather. And like, there was a, it was a TV room where the computers were. And I was like, Hey, is there something, like, is there something going on? And they're like, everybody's like, I don't know. And they were like, just stay on there until the, until the cops come, you know, we'll, we'll watch for you. So I stayed on there as long as I could. And then um, when they came, I went to my cube and they were like, yeah, you guys are locked down until for further notice. But I was on, um, you know, working in the food warehouse, you know, mm-hmm. you're kind of an important employee because mm-hmm. those officers don't know where anything is. Right. And so, um, you know, I was able to get out for a lot of COVID lockdown. I was able to work through that and so I had my but you know a lot of it I kind of flashed back to federal holding and I honestly think that doing that one year in federal holding kind of set the tone for the rest of it because there was nothing I couldn't handle right now there was a lot of self-surrendered that they were not handling it well they were not doing well but I just basically went back to um federal holding days and and but but with writing this time so instead of you know, being locked down, I was able to write and they, they would let me work out, um, in the hallways. And I had, um, I had a couple of friends on my alley that would work out with me, you know, even when we got sick and like we had, we had one person get sick and we were like, Hey, you guys need to get her out of here. Like she's sick. Like we're, she's not well. And they left her there for another 48 hours. So we all got it. But even when we were on the sick alley, I was still working out and doing hit. I was doing hit classes in the middle of the sick alley. And the officers are like, what are you doing? I was like, dude, I'm working out for this whole thing. Like, I don't care. Like, this is how I survived. So I, I wrote, I made notes of every single thing that happened during COVID. I'd watch officers out the windows and make notes on everything. Like I got creepy. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to talk about because you weren't in for a short amount of time. You weren't like a year and a day person. And you right. know, I, 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 I felt like, and I want to know what, how you felt when you got close to the door, you, it's almost like you, you, you think about being on the outside, but you don't think about it a lot because you have this, this real primitive world that you're in. And then when you start getting close to the door, you start thinking, Whoa, I'm coming back out. Like what was go- what went through your mind? Like, knowing that I'm, I'm heading out now, I'm going to start a different world and I'm leaving this world. Well, like the common theme of my whole prison sentence. So let me back up for just a moment. Okay. So when I, when I had to turn myself in, when I took my plea, originally they had told me, Oh no, we're going to, we're going to continue this out for six months and you won't be taking your plea for a while. 
And so I was like, okay, cool. And then like, I think it was just a couple days later that they're like, no, you have to take your plea, you know, in three weeks. And then I think it was about two hours later. They're like, no, it's next week. And I'm like, what? So it was, I had that bandaid ripped off. Yeah. And so, um, and, and that was a good thing looking back, like that was a blessing because if I knew that was coming, I think that would have been even harder. So I basically had a bandaid ripped off and I just had to go for it. Same thing with getting out. And it was weird because, you know, I was up for the CARES Act, but I didn't qualify for the First Step Act. So I really didn't think that I was going to get out on the CARES Act either. I didn't know why they would approve me for that, but not the First Step Act. Mm -hmm. So I, I really didn't get my hopes up. And then um, they called me up to, you know, put my paperwork in. And I was like, okay, you know, whatever. They're going to they're gonna get the Grand Prairie or somewhere and be like, uh, she's got some pretty ugly charges. Nothing violent, but pretty ugly. I mean, it was ugly enough for the First Step Act not to want me. So I would assume and that. For so everybody listening, I'm Grand really Prairie is the place for whatever reason where it all goes to and it comes back on what happens to you. It's Grand Prairie, Texas, I think. Yes. It is. It is Texas. Yeah. So I, you know, that was in, that was in February when they originally called me in to do paperwork and my 50% mark, I think was in April. So I was like, okay, you guys are really on top of things, whatever. We'll see what happens. So April rolls around and I'm like, are they going to do anything? Like what's up? What's happening? Nothing. And it was like, I think it was May maybe maybe fifth um my counselor comes down to the warehouse and he was like he shows up and walks in and i'm like what are you doing and he's like pack your shit you're oh, going to quarantine wow. and i'm like what wow are you serious and so and at that time they were doing 30-day quarantine so i was like well when's my out date and he's like i don't know yet you'll find out when you get up there and i was like okay so i packed my stuff and I mean, I, I gave some stuff away, but not much because honestly, didn't I believe didn't it. believe it. <laughs> right. I did. I still didn't believe it. And yeah. there was a part of me that was like, you don't believe you it until you walk I'm out the door away. anyway. I don't think you're right. And I have that mentality. I'll tell you why, because it, it did happen at one point. But so I pack my stuff. I go into quarantine and it's just me and like maybe two other girls. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, I just turned the TV room into a workout room, just like I would normally do. And I would sit in there and write, and then I would work out, and I would write, and I'd work out, and I'd make, I made these hip bracelets with these little knots. So, like, my fingers were worn out. I was making hip bracelets for everybody on the whole compound. And um, so that was, like, I think it was, like, the fifth. And so it was the next week they were like, okay, your out date's on the tw 26th. And I'm like, that's not 30 days. Like, is that going to be all right? And so coming up to the time, you know, it's everything seemed to be going. Everything was happening. My PO hadn't been to my house, which a lot of other girls were like, oh, every, you know, the PO's already been out. Nothing, nothing on that end was happening. And I was like, this is, there's something wrong. And so um, they shut my phone. My parents drove from Kansas City to Pekin to pick me up. It was you know, they shut my phones off and everything the night before, just like, you know, they would. So I was like, okay. So I passed out my stuff at about 7.15 that morning. Mm -hmm. Here's my stuff. I guess it's happening. At 7.30, here comes the administration. He's like, Morgan, you got to come with me. And I was like, outside of quarantine? He's like, yeah. And I was like, 
Oh my God. I mean, I, the flood of emotion was, I don't have words for it. It was terrible. And so I'm following him up to administration. I looked at him. I was like, I'm not going home. Am I? He's like, we're going to work through this. And I'm like, I just, I took those little words and I just held on to him for dear life because I really wanted to throw up all over my boots. But um, so I go in and my case manager is there and she's like, okay, listen, she's like somebody from your case has separate tea and they're in Leavenworth. And so you're not going to be able to go there. We have to find you another halfway house. Topeka said that they would take you. And I was like, Topeka, like that's really far from my house. And he looks at me, he's like, you want out, right? And I'm like, yep, Topeka's fine. Topeka will be just fine. That's fine. And so anyway, and I thought, my God, you know, they didn't get this stuff figured out, but they don't, they don't think. And I want to get to some of that in a little bit too. But um, so yeah, so they, they didn't, um, she was like, just go back to quarantine. You know, they let me call my parents and my dad was so sweet. He was like, well, I guess this is a practice run. So we'll be, we know where we're going the next time. And I'm like, bless you. Bless you. You're so sweet. So um, it was the next Tuesday I got to leave. Well, it, was, well, it was June 1st is when I, yeah, June 1st is when I got to walk out the door. Yeah. And it was funny because like my boss from the warehouse, like she made an announcement. My counselor came and got me and like personally walked me out the door. And I was a wreck. Yeah. And I'm passing stuff out. I had a bunch of deodorants and stuff. Apparently I thought we were going to, you know, run out of deodorant in the world. I'm passing stuff out as I'm going, but I'm still not believing it. Yeah. It was so weird because, like, during COVID, you know, you're watching TV and people have their masks on and it's such a different world. And then when I walked out the prison, because during prison, you have to wear your mask all the time. Mm-hmm. I walked out the door and I was like, don't I need my mask? And they're like, no. I'm like, what? So, like, everything I saw on TV was so different from what the world really was. Yeah. It was so weird to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, like, I feel like I've been lied to. So what, what happened when you left? Like, is your, your parents there? And then like, what, how do you, cause you, then you had the halfway house that was quite a ways from where you were. What, what all happened? So when you leave prison and you're going to do home confinement, you have so much time allotted to where you leave and you've got to make it to that halfway house for that first second. And, and they you tell you if you don't get there on time that they could send you back and it could be a violation. I know it's it's, it's not a it's not a situation, You're, and it's a little it's a little intimidating. So, um, my dad was like, "Do you want to stop for food?" I'm like, "Absolutely not. Nope, just go. Let's go." So we we got to the halfway house, and I did my check in. But the first thing that I did when I got in the car was um, try to get a hold of my ex husband, and um, he blocked my blocked my dad's number, and I I found my daughter on on like Instagram or something. I tried to send her messages. I sent messages to a couple of her friends and I was not getting anywhere. And so anyway, I, um, that, that was all I wanted was her. Sure. You know what I mean? Like that's literally all I wanted was yeah. just, I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to see her. You know, I still had 50, 50 custody at this point. Yeah. I, I still had my custody. So I'm like, all right, what's up? Cause when I, you know, when I, I called him, I'm like, I still have custody. I would like to make arrangements to see her. And he just lost the number. So anyway, we get to the halfway house, do my check-in, and then I get home. And it's so quiet. And I stayed with my parents the first year that I was out. Mm-hmm. Just because it was just easier. You know, on home confinement, you can't just leave to go to the store. You can't just do, you know, a lot of things. So right. 
team there for that first year was really helpful. But um, so during the COVID era for home confinement, we only had to check in, I think it was once a month at first. And then as they loosened restrictions a little bit, it went to like two times a month and then it was every week. So, um, you know, it's, it's I, the whole way through, I'm like, why isn't there a Kansas City halfway house? Like, why? Where is that at? Like, why, why don't we have that? <laughs> and because uh, I remember one of my friends coming to me when the Kansas City halfway house closed down and she was like, where are we going to go? And it wasn't. It never registered to me what happened on the other side of prison. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I never really fully grasped or made a plan of what was going to happen on the other side. And I remember standing there looking like dumbass, thinking, "Well, I don't know how that affects me. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, you know." And so, and I remember thinking, "Well, by the time I get out, surely there'll be one." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "They come because of funding." And I was like, eh, "Okay, whatever. You know, okay." I mean, it's going to be years until I have to deal with it, but it, you know, it, it wasn't was that you. many right. years later. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So the uh, finally catching up with your daughter, um, what was that like? It was crazy because um, I actually sent a well check down there. Couldn't get a hold of him. Couldn't get a hold of anybody. So I sent a wellness a well check to see if. She was okay. And that was when she found out that I was out. Mm. Um, And then my ex-husband had kicked her out, kicked her out of the house. He kicked her out a couple of times. And then the last one, he kicked her out, like made her pack her bag. So I was like, I'll buy you a ticket. Yeah. So I bought her a ticket and she got here. And then he showed up and acted like I kidnapped her and took it to the court. And because I, you know, had been in prison, they immediately sided with him and it was a mess. I bet. It was terrible. Seeing her for the first time was the most amazing thing ever. You know, we sat there and really, you know, bonded again. And then I had to send her back with him. God, and then now, now I was under a restriction and I had to um, do supervised visits, like supervised video visits. I'm like, come on. Yeah. So where but, is it now? Um, like, where is it now? Like, what's going on now with you and your daughter? So she turned 18 and the day, two days before she turned 18, he kicked her out and she was like, mom, I'm going to stay at a friend's house because if we have a plane ticket, I'm there. He's going to say you kidnapped me again. And I was like, you're right. So she stayed there. And then um, she flew back on her 18th birthday, the first, the first flight out. Okay. And so now she's here, she lives with me. She goes to college. She's got a full time, she got a job and uh, we do house projects and it's amazing. And I remember back to the day before I took my plea, I was at my attorney's office and his paralegal was there. And I was like, I was looking through this, this window and I was like, what, how am I going to do this? Like, what, how, how do I do this? And she said, my daughter was 12. She said, you see that sweet little thing right there? She said, that sweet little thing is about to hit puberty mm-hmm. and she's going to be a different person. She's like, you're going to miss all the bad stuff and then you're going to come back and you guys will be best friends and you're going to be a hero. And she called it boy. She called it. How great I is didn't that? Believe- yeah. Cause we are, that is my best friend. What I are mean- you, what are you doing now, Sabrina? Like, because you there, you know, reading and doing, and I, I hope that all takes you somewhere really cool because, um, and I know that you've got 
such an ability to connect. What's your, what's your, what's in your head of what you want to accomplish now? So I have a fellowship with dreams.org and, um, in this fellowship, um, there are 15 other people and, um, and we have several mentors. Um, dream is the one that pushed through the first step act. Yep. So they're, they're kind of a big deal. And they I'm are a big pretty deal. honest. I'm so honored for this whole, you know, situation and these people are just unbelievable. But, uh, during my interview process, I was on a soapbox about the federal halfway house in Kansas city. You know, there's <laughs> not, and I, I feel like, you know, there's a responsibility. Like you send these people to prison, you better have a plan to bring them back. And yeah. what's happening right now simply isn't working. Cause on home confinement, you have to, like, for instance, I drive 88 miles one way just to do my check-ins every single week. It's just a crazy. quick, simple check-in. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. There has to be another way. And there, and it's amazing to me because, like, I was at a gala last Friday, and um, I just plopped down with some trial lawyers, and we got to sit chatting about the federal system. And I was like, yeah, I'm really – you know, I'm, I have a project right now that I want to try to get a federal halfway house in Kansas City. And she looked at me really weird and she's like, there's not a federal halfway house. And I was like, no. Right. So there's halfway houses. There's no federal halfway houses. So the closest one is in Leavenworth. So what that means is like for people east of here, for people, you know, beyond Kansas City, some of those people were denied to come out of prison because there wasn't a halfway place house. to go. They- right. Yep. And that's not, that's not unusual. There- uh uh-uh. In 2017, the Trump administration started cutting funding for ha- for the Second Chance Act, which is what funds the halfway house. There was at least 16 halfway houses that closed down. And then, you know, the First Step Act passed and then the CARES Act. And now, you know, you have all these people that are heavily relying on halfway houses and there's not enough. So dream.org, what, I mean, I know what it is, but what, what, what do you, what does it do? Well, they do, they do several different things. Oh, they do a lot of things. They're amazing. Um, but they have like a tech portion of it. They have a justice portion of it. And then they have a green portion of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have different causes. Um, their tech community tries to get people, you know, put into jobs, yep. tech type jobs. Um, and then green, obviously, they have a lot of campaigns going on. Right now on the justice portion of it, they're trying to push through the Equal Act, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, the... Crack cocaine and cocaine only have baking soda as a difference. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so, um, but people are still being sentenced heavily for, you know, they could have one gram of crack and one gram of crack and one gram of, of cocaine is very different. Like if they had 18 grams of cocaine, they would get the same sentence. So, right. you know, it, it's just, it's unfortunate the way um, that should have been gone a long time ago and it should have been brought to the floor, but you know, getting bills passed it's hard. through. It's hard. It's hard. And there's so much that goes into it. And I think the more I look into this, the more I find, you know, I find out that the second chance act, the funding for it was cut. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is so much bigger than just a federal halfway house in Kansas city. Well, I mean, I think and what it so- is too, is that I, I, I never want anybody to get confused on the first step act was the first step. And, and there's so Correct. many things that have to be, um, create momentum. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are doing good things all around. That's one of the things I love about what I do is I get to talk to a lot of people in different States that are doing really incredible work. And it's so important that the people who have been affected 
directly affected are at the seat at the table because those are the people that really know what's important. Because there's a lot of people out there that yeah. have good feelings about that they want to help, but it really needs to be people who've been affected um, that need the seat at the table so, so that they can stay on point. So that there's like what, right. what you're talking about with the halfway house and how you saw that affected people to how they couldn't get out. All those things are really important. And I hope as, as it goes along, Sabrina, that the work that you do and the work that other people do, that we continue to connect the dots so that we become a stronger voice so that more change right. can happen. And that's, you know, that happens a little bit at a time, but I think the more people that are out there that have a brain, they didn't take our brain that we, put that in, in motion. And I think one of the things I, that reminds me, I thought the thing that you said here, and it was in one of the, one of the blogs that you wrote, but I just thought it was such a cool thing. This is the cool thing about life is that you get to keep trying until it, until it's over, as long as you don't give up. I just think that's just yeah. like your, your life is that your life story is that, and you put that so succinctly into that statement. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't give up, is if you just keep trying, the cool thing about life is until it's over, you can always try. And you're all about, you know, don't worry about the failures. Don't worry about the mistakes. Keep going because those are the things you learn from. But I, Sabrina, I want to ask you because you've, you've had so many different layers of your life that you've lived through. Mm-hmm. And now it feels, I can feel it. It's, it's like the feel good stuff. It's just feel good stuff with what you're doing with dream.org, feel good stuff with your daughter. You're, you've got yourself, you know, out on a farm and doing things that you love. Mm-hmm. What do you think is your biggest takeaway through all of that you've been through? Um, I just feel, you know, from about prison, what I take away from prison is that that's not the end. Like it's never the end. Yeah. Like no matter what you're going it's not the end kind of like what you said before but my biggest takeaway is it's not the end it's not over your life's not over just because you have a prison sentence like life goes on and there's a good life on the other side of here and there's so many people that do care and there's a lot more people that will care when they realize that there's needs that are necessary but it takes a voice to be able to bring that to their to their attention and i just feel like um I feel like like life after prison is really amazing because you can become who you, whoever you want to become. You know what I mean? Like you can be like, you don't have to be, you know, down and depressed and, you know, like, Oh yeah, I was really bad. And I went to prison. I made some big mistakes and this is my comeback story. Like this is me coming back. And it's exciting. Like, it can be an exciting thing. Like, yes, just like any part of life, you're going to go through some stuff. But there's too much There's too much positivity and joy that you can get on the other side of your prison sentence. It's not over. And I, I back to TikTok, I feel like that has been such a giant platform for prison um, advocacy. Because, you know, there's so many people watching right now. And knowing that there's a need, you know, reentry is such a big thing. It's such a big deal. And, and not just halfway houses, but really reentry. Like, I believe reentry needs to start from the beginning. Yeah. It needs to start from the day that you are arrested. And there needs to be like a concierge. Yeah. I sit on a board for, uh, that's prep for reentry, um, prep for release. I apologize. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that's, we're brand new. We're just kind of getting going. But that's kind of our motto is that, you know, you start from the, it needs to start from the very beginning. And it's not just a person that's incarcerated. It's the family. It's for the family, you know? family goes it's to prison. Right? 
your whole family goes to prison. And not only that, but it's a, it can be a community thing too. Yeah. And, and all these people that are sharing their stories on TikTok was incredibly comforting to me. Yeah. And me being tell my story, it's been really healing. And, you know, there's days where I'm like, okay, I mean, shut up. You, you, people don't want to hear you. But I've had so many people reach out. Because I'm, you know, I'm one of those people, I'll give out my number. I'm like, just call me. They're like, I'm freaking out. I'm getting ready to go to prison. I'm like, just call me. I'll just talk you through it. You're fine. And I want to, and by the way, Sabrina, I want to give a shout out to Gina Pentagraph because she, she connected me to you. And, and yeah. I, and I love that. I've, that's what I, I love about it. And I, let's talk about too, how to get a hold of you, follow you on TikTok, which is just Sabrina Morgan. Yeah. Um, go to your website. That's sabrinamorgan.com. And then how, the, where I went to, I don't know how I got to medium. What, how do I get over there? Cause I, I ended up there and I'm not even sure how I ended there. <laughs> It's medium.com and okay. I'm just Sabrina on medium.com. Like okay. you can get on medium.com and search that up, but you can also, I mean, I would be happy to give my email address Do. as well. Please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's Sabrina and it's S A B R E N A. I know that's spelled funny. Dot Morgan dot Missouri all spelled out at gmail.com. And you're welcome to reach out to me. Like if somebody's going because, you know, I had that person that I could, that yeah, coached me that. through my, and, and I want to bless somebody else with that too, because just having someone to talk you through it, it's priceless. It's huge. So, yeah. That's a good way to yeah. end it right there, Sabrina, because that's why you're good at what you're doing. You're sharing your story and helping people. Um. For everybody who's out there, I know that you got a lot from this show from Sabrina, so Go and follow the show. Hit the bell on Spotify. Hit the follow the show on uh, on Apple. I know it's a pain, but but uh, it's great to leave a review if you got something from today. I don't know what happens with the algorithm, but it really just puts it on steroids when people leave the reviews. If you want to know any more about what I've got going on, it's BrentCassie.com with a T-Y, not a D-Y. Um, and I love all the feedback from you guys every week. Love staying in touch. As I used to say when I was writing my emails back and forth from prison, stay strong. I'll do the same. Sabrina Morgan, thank you so much today for sharing your story. Thanks. It's awesome. Thank you. Nightmare success in and out. Thanks.